0: Welcome to Talk Is Sheep, the official podcast of the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Brought to you by our title sponsor, Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Come along with us as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. We have partnered with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab to help get you in shape and mentally stronger. Whether you're a veteran hunter or just starting out, the Mountain Tough app will take you to the next level. We personally train using the Mountain Tough programs and we believe in it so much that we want to give you six weeks for free using code SHEEPBC. That's S-H-E-E-P-B-C. Check out Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. You won't be disappointed. This episode is sponsored by our conservation partner, Yeti. Thank you Sitka Gear and Yeti for investing in healthy wildlife and sustainable ecosystems. Uh, good morning, Kate. Uh, welcome to Talk as Sheep. It's awesome to, to finally get on a podcast with you and chat what's going on in your world.
1: Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks for having me. Looking forward awesome. to so, chatting.
0: Yeah, likewise. So for our guests, uh, let's just talk a little bit about who you are, where you're at, and kind of what you're involved in these days.
1: Sure. Um, so I'm a, I'm a wildlife health biologist. That's my title. Uh, currently with the, uh, the Fish and Wildlife Branch. And we are sitting in the Ministry of Water, Land, and Resource Stewardship um, right now. So, um, yeah, I I joined the the BC Wildlife Health Program back in 2006, and uh, so I've been with been with that group for for some time now. Um, it wasn't the path that I was expecting. I I I studied marine ecology in university, but uh, had an opportunity to to work with Helen Swancha. Um, I met her um, through another project back in the summer of 2006 and I was just sort of impressed by her <laughs> as many people are, right? She's just this badass wildlife veterinarian and doing really cool work. And so um, luckily she, I don't know, saw something in me and invited me to join her team. And I learned everything on the job. Um, Helen's a great teacher, so... So started, um, yeah, getting involved with different wildlife health projects and just kind of supporting Helen in the work that she was doing. And uh, yeah, over the years, um, you know, did, did some CWD sampling trips with her. You know, she had started the chronic wasting disease surveillance before I joined, but um, yeah, I always became more involved. And then she sort of handed me the, the reins of that program. A uh, number of years ago now, gosh, I've, I've lost count. Maybe like ten or twelve years ago, she sort of um, put that uh, on my on my desk. And um, yeah, back you know back in those days, we were obviously really concerned about chronic wasting disease. We were we were looking at what was going on in some other places. Um, you know, our colleagues in Alberta and down south, and it was clearly a, a real challenge. And um, so, so, you know, in those, in those days uh, we were still saying BC was pretty low risk for chronic wasting disease, but, you know, in particular hunters that were going to these other places, it's something they should know about. And anyway, so it, uh, yeah, when I took, took over the program, it was, it was a different situation that we're in today. So things have evolved and, and i have continued to learn a ton. Um, and uh, yeah, from, from Helen and of course, Helen retired a couple of years ago now working under, Dr. Kylie Thacker, and um, she's also amazing. And um, you know, we're we're tackling these tricky, tricky issues around wildlife wildlife health as a team. And yeah, here we are today.
0: Awesome. So I've got a whole bunch of things I want to dive into, but you know, really the crux of the decision or the podcast was uh, to discuss CWD. So let's dive right into it. So you talked about how things have changed, you know, you were, we we're low risk and now things are a little bit different. So where do we sit? What's our current status? Actually, you know what, let's, let's start right at the front. And <laughs> what is CWD sort of, where does it come from? Why is it important? Why do we need to pay attention to it? Let's start there, Kate. Yeah.
1: We'll go there. Yeah. Good. <laughs> yeah. Good starting point. So, so chronic wasting disease is a is infectious disease that um, affects species of the deer family. So cervids, Um, both deer species, mule deer, white-tailed deer, moose, and elk. We've had cases in all those species in North America. Um, We also believe that caribou are susceptible to this disease. Um, Haven't had any cases confirmed in North America, but of course the CWD outbreak in Scandinavia, we've seen it impacting um, reindeer over there and, you know, some other cervids. So, so uh, yeah, it's, um, it's a hundred percent fatal in all the animals that become infected and we still don't have any, you know, treatment or, or vaccine. Um, so once an animal becomes infected uh, they will die. So of course there's conservation concerns uh, uh, on that front, but um, uh, yeah, it's a, uh, it's caused by this abnormal protein called a prion, the, the, the prion is the protein is misfolded, and so it's not um, doesn't act like like protein should in the body. Um, you know, we all have these proteins in our bodies, and what they're what they're meant to do is kind of you know break down and into their component parts. But these disease causing prions um, will accumulate in the body. Um, they accumulate uh, particularly in the central nervous system and in the brain, and so ultimately. Um, it causes a neurological disease, so it's a it's a terrible disease, a terrible outcome um, for those animals. Uh, and and throughout that course of the disease, the animals are able to shed that disease agent um, into the environment and expose other other animals either directly through nose to nose contact or or into the environment and and, yeah, there's still a lot we don't know about prion diseases. They're, they're very um, tricky. Uh, they, you know, other prion diseases that people may be familiar with are, you know, mad cow disease. It's sort of the cattle version, VSC. Um, there's some human um, prion diseases. There's prion disease that affects um, sheep and goats called scrapie. But CWD is is very different. These different prion diseases are quite different, and and one of the most challenging aspects of CWD is that um, it can get into the environment. So infected animals will shed this into the environment, contaminate those environments, and um, there's not really anything we can do to, um, you know, decontaminate to 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 you know clean up those environments once the prions are in the soil on the plants, on, you know, in the water, they're basically, uh, indestructible. They're resistant to, you know, standard disinfectants, they're resistant to burning. And so, um, one of the only real ways to sort of deactivate these prions is through, um, you know, high heat extended, uh, incineration. And so, um, it just makes it really tricky, especially when the disease gets into a free ranging population. So, you know, there's been, there's been major challenges with, um, cervid farming, you know, uh, captive herds of deer and elk become infected on, you know, on these farms. That's been a real issue. Uh, and, um, but yeah, it's also gotten into the, to wild populations and, and spread around. So, um, you know, we don't really know exactly where it came from. We don't know for sure, but the first documented cases of chronic wasting disease were down in the States in Colorado and Wyoming in the 1960s. And uh, they didn't really know what the disease was at that time. Um, but uh, you know, you know, 10 or 15 years later, they, they described it as this prion disease described it as chronic wasting disease later on. But by that time it had spilled, um, you know, from these captive populations into the wild, and and it moved around quite a bit. Uh, it was introduced to Canada in the 1990s through um, through farmed elk, and uh, yeah, it sort of it can it can spread um, from captive to far- to free ranging populations and vice versa. We now know um, that it can because it can get into the environment and get into Um, um, plant material like hay and grain Uh, so now we know it can move around on on that plant material as well can move around with on an infected carcass and so there's a number of different ways it can get into the environment and spread around Um, and uh, yeah we you know in the last 20 years we've learned so much about this this uh, you know when when jurisdictions were start first really starting to 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 try and manage this we didn't have all that information so um I guess in a way where we sort of have the benefit of all the lessons learned and all the 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 uh you know unfortunately for some places it has been a real challenge and and um the disease has really taken hold of of populations in different places and there's not much we can do at this point so um we're just kind of watching it so uh BC is kind of in this um, enviable position where we haven't detected it yet. And uh, we have a lot of knowledge now that has been generated over the last couple of decades that we can we can learn from. You know, mistakes were made, and um, we can learn from those mistakes. We have not, not great tools um, in terms of management, but some better tools. And, uh, yeah, so we're just trying to do everything we can in BC to, um, you know, focus on prevention. We we anticipate that it will enter BC um, if it's not already here. Uh, it's it's not a matter of if, it's just when we're going to get that first detection and hopefully we're going to catch it early. And um, and yeah, so we're, we're trying to prepare for that. We're trying to, you know, work through some scenarios and, and different management options of how we're going to, tackle it here so um yeah we've been watching this situation evolve over the last you know since even since I've been part of the program you know 16 17 years we've gone like I said from a low risk situation to okay it's on our border if not in BC we just haven't tested it we haven't detected it yet um but uh yeah it it is a tricky one for sure (laughs)
0: Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, and I've got all kinds of questions. So <laughs> yeah. forgive me, and and that, you know these are always really fun for me because I learned so much. But um, so there's the uh, Creutzfeldt-Jacob's disease, mm-hmm. which uh, is obviously in humans. Uh, are these? And you talked about these prions. Um, so we got CWD, we got mad cow, we've got you know a whole host of them. Mm-hmm. Are they all kind of interrelated? Or is it just a, a terminology in the species? For example, the cervids versus cows versus humans. Um, are they are they all kind of the same thing, or are they completely different?
1: They're they're related in that they are caused by a prion. They're caused mm, by this abnormal uh, misfolded protein. Yeah, the the various diseases are quite different. And again, there's a mm. lot we don't know about them. You know, things like scrapie's been around a little bit longer. We know a little bit more about that. Um, but, like, you know, even from mad cow disease compared to chronic wasting disease, for example, um, the disease cycle with, with mad cow disease, uh, cattle actually have to consume infected meat um, to become infected. And then uh, they don't shed the, the disease agent into the environment um, uh, like like we see with chronic wasting disease. And so when a, when a cattle population is um becomes infected, you know, if you depopulate the, that, you remove those animals, then um, then you've sort of stopped that disease cycle. You know, it's not into, into the environment. It's not persisting. Um, so, you know, that's not the case with CWD. Um, and that's something that we've learned, right? And uh, years ago, when, when captive populations became infected, um, they would depopulate you know, farms like herds on farms to try and break that disease cycle without knowing that it was in the environment, right? And so they would introduce healthy animals back onto those properties, and then they would pick it up. So, so that's really tricky, and that's you know, so that's just one example of how these different prion diseases are different. Um, but basically, as a as a group of of diseases, um, you know, they're they're part of a, a group of diseases um, uh, called TSEs. Um, transmissible spongiform encephalopathies. And so basically what that means is, you know, they're you're able to transmit the disease between animals. The encephalopathy means the disease of the brain uh, and um, uh, the spongiform in the middle, I did that in the wrong order. Um, spongiform actually describes a, the result, um, what happens, the pathology of the brain tissue. And so when these, when these prions, accumulate in the brain because they're not functioning like normal proteins they will actually cause cell death and tissue death and so what you actually end up with is uh, holes in the tissue holes in the brain tissue Mm -hmm. and so you get these sponge-like appearances and you can see that in um, you know uh, uh, images of of the infected brain tissue under a microscope it looks like a sponge and so you know those types of characteristics um, sort of group these different prion diseases in that family of diseases, but um, yeah, they're very different. Um, They don't tend to cross species very uh, easily. And so, you know, that's why we say CWD um, is believed to only uh, affect species in the deer family or cervids Um, under natural conditions. We haven't had any cases of CWD in, in other uh, species or species uh, you know uh, species groups in in a natural condi- condition but obviously there's been research that's tried to push that and and tried to get a, a better handle um, on potential transmission to other species um, you know could it trans- transfer to pre- uh, to primates um, uh, you know looking at that human health uh, risk and uh, yeah the results are are, um, still, sort of inconclusive, I guess. Um, some of the the findings of some different research has been inconsistent, and so um, through through research, they have been able to push what we call that species barrier. And so, by you know, literally in, injecting infected material into animal you know brains, or or you know, in some cases, even just feeding contaminated meat. Um, To animals, they have been able to uh, transmit that disease to other species group, but we haven't seen any of that in in, under natural conditions. Yeah.
0: So, is there any risk to anyone if you ingest a CWD infected carcass? Is there any issue there?
1: Yeah. So, so you know, I'm a I'm not a human health person, um, but like expert, I kind of stay in my animal health. Role, but uh, we work pretty closely on on CWd with our public health or human health colleagues um, for their advice on this and what they recommend and this is coming from the World health organization you know health Canada the various um, um, public health uh, agencies is that there's never been a documented case of CWd in a human but because the research has been sort of in, inconclusive um, we can't rule it out entirely the risk is probably low for transmission to people but but public health recommends that any animal that's infected with CWD is not consumed and so okay. just uh yeah a, a precautionary approach is is uh, warranted in this situation until we know more um yeah
0: okay so now you talked about cwd not sort of there's no knowledge of it changing species like from cervids to primates for example but do you have cases where uh you feel that maybe mule deer infected whitetails or whitetails infected uh moose or elk Uh, is there evidence of that where that's happening
1: yeah we think so i mean once um as far as, as far as I know, the, once the disease is in a population or in, in the environment, it can it can transmit from, from different cervid species. So we know um, some of the cases that we've uh, had in other places, of course, like in Alberta, where we've had cases in moose, CWD uh, cases in moose. They've popped up in areas where there was a, um, you know, a mule deer population, an endemic population. Um, CWD in a mule deer population. And so the cases in moose were sort of associated with uh, overlap um, with the, the mule deer population. You know, whether they're getting it from those animals or um, from the environment or some kind of like shared food, if there's like a, I don't know, you know, like bait stations and things like that, agricultural areas where where animals are aggregating or or kind of sharing food sources tend to be areas where high um, uh, disease transmission high rates of disease transmission can happen Um, so yeah we know that it can move um, between between species
0: okay Mm -hmm. now you mentioned one of the things that uh, the disease is really really challenging to kill like high heat is one of the only things so how long will it persist say for example there's a contamination there's a dead animal and it's you know infected the soil how long will that hang around for like are we talking months years decades
1: we don't really know i think some of the the, the best information we have about how long these prions can survive in the environment uh, i think come back to uh the the prion the the prion that we see with scrapie. So in sheep and goats, there's been some research looking at that prion in the environment. And it was, it was over 15 years and we didn't actually know the endpoint, but they had like, you know, tested uh, environmental samples after 15 years. And those prions were still active in the absence of sick animals. So we, you know, we suspect, and and of course, of course we want to, you know, we, we don't know for sure but we want to sort of take a um uh conservative uh, approach right in that likely years you know we don't know for sure but but once um cwd prions enter the environment we're assuming it's going to be years we don't know how long yeah
0: okay so now from a, uh, I guess uh resolution perspective obviously you know uh prevention is the the biggest thing but uh now that you know if you have a disease event obviously no treatment for it there's no vaccines there's no magic bullet that's going to fix and make cwd go away is there any research being done on it i get it it's wild animals so Mm -hmm. you know how do you treat wild animals that's that's problematic we we know this about Movi. even if Mm -hmm. there was a cure Mm -hmm. um how do we treat those animals but uh what does that look like uh, moving forward is there research being done in that area
1: yeah and i'm not super familiar with it but but i i do know that there is research being done to try and develop a a treatment or vaccine for cwd and um you know that's driven largely by um the like producers like uh, the the deer and elk farming industry right because they that's what they would like and and treatment of those animals in a captive setting is obviously more practical. Um, So, so I know there, there has been some, a lot of effort in that and a lot of research, but, but nothing really reliable has, has um, come out of that yet. I mean, there's some, some places um, have said that they have a vaccine, but you know, we haven't seen a really, a solid um, product yet. And then of course application to wildlife is, is another story but yeah
0: Mm -hmm. yeah definitely a few issues with that right trying to Mm -hmm. capture thousands of mule deer and treat them yeah good luck
1: yeah yeah i think i think we're best off to just try and 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 prevent prevent it or or at least um you know do everything in our power to uh limit negative impacts right so we expect it's going to come to bc um uh where, where it pops up, we don't know, which is kind of a scary, scary thing, right? The ability for the disease to come in, um, on an infected carcass or through contaminated hay means that it could really pop up anywhere. And so we are, you know, trying to do, uh, testing and surveillance of, of cervids, uh, in every corner of BC to, in an effort to try and stay ahead of it. Um, Another very likely way that it will come into BC is just through um, infected live animals just moving over the border. And so so the proximity of the cases down sort of in the southeast part of the province is, uh, makes that area the, probably the highest risk uh, for the disease coming in. We have cases uh, on the sort of southern part of the Alberta-BC border um alberta has a ex, you know an extensive surveillance program and they've been very generous with their data every year to to help us to inform sort of the risk for bc uh, but yeah we know that there's cases in both mule deer and white-tailed deer right on the bc border on the alberta side now well within the range of you know just natural animal movement um similarly to the south we've got uh uh a CWD outbreak in northeast Montana um, around the Libby area, mainly affecting whitetail deer, um, but they've, I think they've had a couple cases in moose now. There was also a an elk farm affected down in that area, um, and so again, well within the range of natural animal movement, um, and yeah, spread into Idaho last year as well. So. Um, so, you know, in that zone, kind of Southeast BC is where we're doing the majority of our testing, um, to ensure that we, we pick it up. Um, we detect it as soon as possible. Uh, we've had to, uh, implement some mandatory testing for mule deer and white-tailed deer, harvested, um, mule deer and white-tailed deer down in that area to try and boost our surveillance numbers. Um, because unfortunately, I mean, To be perfectly honest, Kyle, the the number of animals that we're testing in BC right now is not providing the confidence that we need to confirm our disease status, to confirm whether or not CWD is in BC. Um, And so we had to implement that mandatory testing down in the southeast, you know, to provide that confidence. So we have fairly good confidence in, you know, those management units right along the border um but the rest of you know the rest of region four the rest of bc we we, you know our our numbers are so low right now um that i'm worried that the disease is going to come in and it's not going to be detected right away um because we do need to test a lot of animals and so our our goal is to um is to test as as many animals as we can through animals that are already being removed from the landscape, right? So that's hunter harvested animals. Um, Roadkill animals are also really, uh, a really important sample for us. Um, uh, Still about 80% of our samples are coming from hunters. And so that's like such an important partnership there, um, working with the hunting, um, with communities and hunting organizations to access those samples. Uh, it's voluntary in most parts of the province um, but really highly encouraged so um, so yeah we're we're always trying to get those numbers up that's going to be really important because if the if the disease comes into the province and we don't detect it right away and we've seen this in other places where um, you know different, Places in the states, they get their first detection, and they'll do some more sort of targeted sampling in that area, and, and find out that in fact 20% of the animals are infected with CWD, mm-hmm. and at that point, there's just not nothing we can do about it. You know, there's there mm-hmm. there's no management action that's going to be effective. Like, a, you just kind of have to wait. You know, monitor from that point. Um, but there's other examples in you know in in the states where they've had. Really good surveillance programs, and they've detected the disease early. Um, you know, we qualify it uh, through like a, a disease prevalence um, percentage. So, so places like Illinois um, detected CWD where they figured it was still. In you know less than one percent of of the animals they were testing, so that indicates that they caught it really early before it had a chance to get into the you know environment and take hold of that population, and so they've been able to apply some really effective management um, because they caught it early and they act quickly, and through you know mainly harvest management, which is the recommendation now, it's sort of the the most important tool for managing CWD is hunting and harvest management. Um, you know, they've been able to maintain a low disease prevalence of under 3% of the population now over 20 years. So with CWD, I, I our, you know, the goal, of course, is always going to be to eradicate it, but I, I really don't think that's likely. Um, there's basically, you know, nowhere else has been able to eradicate the disease entirely um, because of the whole environmental contamination aspect. But if we can catch it early... And be, you know, really smart about our um, management approach. You know, take the time to understand the the dynamics of that disease outbreak, and um, you know, focus in on animals that are most likely to be infected. You know, tighten up our um, preventative measures in terms of like limiting the potential to spread, um, limiting uh, disease transmission. Then um, you know I think we've got a chance to contain it, um, but uh, but yeah, it's really key to all of this is to catch it early, and um, in order to do that we need we need um, to improve and en- enhance our, our testing, our surveillance right now.
0: So I know with um, you know we sit on the provincial hunting trapping advisory team mm-hmm. and there's a, a number of stakeholders. And there's widespread support um, from the organizations. How are the hunters of British Columbia? Are you seeing buy-in? Are you seeing people keen to support, or are you getting kind of that pushback where, like, uh, they're not interested in, in helping? So, yeah. what, what does that look like? And and I'm also curious about your numbers. So you talked about stats. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how many heads are you getting? Uh, how much testing are you able to get a year yeah. um, at currently?
1: Okay, yeah. Let's come back to the the surveillance stats because that's key. But I I, I want to talk a bit about our yeah our collaborative um, team for a while. Cause I think that is, is so essential for, for, um, effective management and, and our success against, you know, CWD and BC. So, you know, coming back to, to Helen uh, in those early days and in her, in her wisdom, she set up some, uh, working groups, um, which the, you know, wild sheep society was, was part of that from day one. Um, a lot of, you know, the number of the hunting organizations, um, some other agency partners and some CWD experts, uh, were all part of that group. Um, so yeah, Helen set up these working groups with the intention that if we were going to do this right, we needed to, to have a, a collaborative approach. And so, um, you know, hunters, hunting organizations have been such an uh, important partner in that. Um, so we've developed our CWD plan. It's a surveillance and response plan for CWD and BC. That's, um, you know, it's available on our website if anyone wants to have a look at that. But we developed that collaboratively. Everyone was able to um, provide input and, and, and help guide what we're doing in, in BC Um, so, so I think that really strengthens everything that we're doing in terms of the prevention, um, you know, the regulations that we've developed over the years, uh, our strategies for surveillance and accessing samples for testing. Um, and now, you know, like present day, we're talking a lot more about response planning and scenarios and how, how we want to manage. CWD when it's detected in BC, kind of running through um, those scenarios, running running through what our collective objectives are uh, for for uh, for wildlife and um, and what type of management tools we um, you know what kind of management tools will be available to us to achieve those objectives. So um, in in general, I would say um, you know our our hunting um, partners like local communities, um, you know, right up to the, the, you know, leadership of, of the different um, hunting organizations and NGOs have been, have been very supportive. Um, and, you know, and also with first nations partners, you know, we're building our partnerships with first nations um, on, on, on like the provincial uh, scale, also within communities with some, you know, on the ground kind of, uh, workshops and, and different things. Um, overall, there has been great support. Um, you know, everybody wants, everyone has the same, same goals here when it comes to chronic wasting disease, right? Everyone wants healthy wildlife, you know, resilient populations, sustainable populations. Um, they want uh, access to to, you know, for, for game meat that they know is healthy and good for them and good for their families. You know, we're, we're all on the same page here. So in general, the support has been great. Um, I think some of, some of the the barriers maybe, or the struggles that we've been having in terms of accessing samples, uh, has really been around lack of awareness. Um, and you know, we, we think, uh, education and just building awareness uh, around the program around what we're trying to do also around like the the risks that could bring CWD back you know with the human related activities importing carcasses and and um, you know contaminated hay or grain you know all that is really important and having you know strong um, you know opportunities to to do outreach um, having a strong sort of outreach campaign uh, is really key and, and, but we've struggled with that. It, it's hard, you know, we're, we're a pretty small program. And so getting the word out and, and really reaching everybody. I still, I still talk to lots of folks that are not aware of the program we have in BC um, even though I feel like it's all I do is uh, just try and, you know, get the word out there. Um, but, uh, but I think that's, that's probably one of our main barriers um, is that people just aren't aware Of what's going on and they're not aware of the program um but you know i i i think there's there's signs that we're building awareness but there's still a lot we we can do um when i get the opportunity to actually have a conversation with somebody um it it usually ends up being pretty positive um but it's just connecting with those people that's is kind of hard hard to do sometimes
0: well, it's great, and I appreciate you coming on the podcast to talk about this. And hopefully, we can get the message out, and our listeners can share that. Uh, you were at the Victoria Outdoor Show, I think it was last year, and or, or earlier this year, I guess it was. And you know, I, that was a great, great opportunity. I think you know we're trying to get you to the Mountain Hunting Expo in Penticton, and I yeah. think that's a good venue because it's right on the border there, right? So they, yeah. you know, the um, so. Um, you know you're you're getting the word out and it's great that you're having those dialogues so on that subject um, how close I know it's on the doorstep but how close is CWD that you talked about some of these animals that are kind of it's within their natural range but mm-hmm. it hasn't been detected so how close are we and and how big of a risk is it for BC
1: yeah so we have um, you know I don't have the data from uh, Montana or Alberta from this season but um, from last year, we have confirmed cases within 40 kilometers of the BC border, uh, mm. both into Alberta uh, and in, down into Montana. Those are the closest cases. Um, but, you know, both Alberta and Montana has have done quite a bit of uh, testing through hunter samples, sort of in, you know, near or adjacent to the BC border. Um, so we have quite a, a lot of data that are animals that have tested, you know, and come back negative, but, which is which is good. But, um, but we know that there's definitely cases, and every year there's more cases, and every year those cases move closer to the BC border. Um, my concern is that there may be infected animals in BC right now, and, um and we just haven't detected it yet so I I would mm-hmm. say in the southeast part of the province for sure um, we're very high risk for for getting a positive detection you know it could be this year it it might not it might be next year um best case scenario is that the we get our first positive positive you know, in these areas in the southeast where we're doing a lot of testing, because we will have pretty good confidence that we'll catch it early, because we are testing so mm-hmm. many more animals down in that part. Um, the my biggest fear is that we we get our first positive in in um, you know in the Almanika or in the caribou regions where we're really not doing much testing at all, and so the disease mm-hmm. could could. Be introduced to those populations and sort of go unchecked for a period of time. Um, we also, you know, we have really strong relationships um, uh, with with partners in, you know, in the southeast and up in the Peace Region in the Okanagan. Like we have been building our working groups and and um, you know all of the the local the local Contacts have, have been incredibly supportive in those areas and are really well informed, I think, through the different, um, you know, information sessions that we've done through working group meetings. And so uh, we'll be able to respond quickly with, uh, you know, a really um, strong team. But, uh, but yeah, we, we need to continue to build those, those, that capacity in other places, too, just in case it does pop up somewhere else.
0: Right. So now I know Alberta really struggles, particularly with mule deer, but you talked about these other species. Mm-hmm. Is it only deer we're testing in BC or Are we testing all cervids or what does it look like data-wise?
1: Yeah, we're interested in testing all cervids. So we test any uh, mule deer, white-tailed deer, moose, elk, or caribou that we can access. Um, most of those uh, samples are coming from hunters, but we'll also collect Uh, roadkill if we can the the trappers have been really supportive in in collecting road um, submitting heads of the roadkill they're collecting for bait um we have some highway crews we're always trying to you know build a system with the highway crews that are picking up roadkill to access some of those animals because we know we are missing a lot um there and then you know any other opportunistic sample you know if it's through one of our um you know, wildlife coloring projects, if there's a mortality, we try and get samples off those animals. Um, if the conservation officers have to dispatch an animal, we try and get samples off those animals. So um, yeah, everything that every sample that we can get our hands on is really valuable. Really, you know, to be able to pick this up because when CWD is first introduced to a population, it's likely going to be at a very um small percentage of animals infected and so you need to test a lot of animals so if we can access as many animals as possible that are already being removed from the landscape then that would be great and we are far from overwhelmed in terms of the number of animals that we're we're testing we could we can test a lot more um so yeah so that's that's our goal
0: from a testing basis is it the brain matter that has to be like, it's always the heads that are turned in, but can you use the flesh or any other part of the animal to test? Oh,
1: that's, that's a really good question. So, um, yeah, traditionally, uh, we, you know, hunters have turned in the head, but what we, we actually don't need the brain. It's, um, on, on all the, the, The different cervid species um, we collect uh, a lymph node at the back of the throat it's called a retropharyngeal lymph node and that's sort of the gold standard for the sample that we want Um, with deer we also collect tonsils just like us it's just a tonsil at the kind of you know roof of the mouth back of the throat and so um, for deer because both that lymph node and the tonsils are right at the back of the throat, the hunters have a few different options for how to turn in samples. The heads the heads are great, and that's easy. Um, we don't need the brain or, you know, the top part of the head at all. So we encourage hunters to take the antlers um, off um, if, uh, if, you know, if it's a buck if uh if hunter wants to do a european mount um then they can just submit the low jaw so we have instructions on the website now that if you just remove the the low jaw um by cutting around the bone of that low low jaw bone um all the tissues that we need are are protected at the back so just that low jaw with some of the the soft tissue at the back of the throat that's all we need um and then a third option is we're offering, uh, you know, we're doing a lot of workshops right now with hunters to just sort of provide training on how to collect the tissues of their own animals. And so we have some hunters now that when they're processing their animals, they're actually just collecting the tonsils and the lymph nodes and submitting those frozen in a Ziploc bag. So they don't need to turn in any part of the head. Um, and so, you know, it, you know, any way that we can facilitate that and, 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 um, you know, support the hunter and getting those samples to us making it as easy as possible um, then that's great on the on the uh, elk moose and caribou we do collect a slightly different um, suite of samples so still that same lymph node at the back of the throat but we also take a piece of the brainstem called the obex and that's right at the base of the skull um, right sort of at the that junction between that first vertebrae and the base of the skull. And so for that reason, on those species, hunters can't just submit the low jaw. We we do need the head intact. Um, and so hunters are still um, turning in uh, the whole head with the, you know, antlers taken off. That's that's no problem. Um, or again, hunters can learn how to collect that OBEX. It's pretty, pretty straightforward. It's right at the opening of the base of the skull where the spinal cord kind of splits. There's like a little V section. And we literally go into the base of the skull with a grapefruit spoon if you know those little skinny spoons and we pull the we pull the that obex tissue out and again that can just be frozen in a ziploc bag so hunters can turn that in
0: what kind of turnaround time are you looking at when i when i was out in alberta i I think i hunted last fall out there and i harvested a mule deer and i submitted the sample and i had it like incredibly quick it was within a few days or certainly within a week so kind of you know i gave the confidence that consuming the meat because it is such a problem in alberta right Mm -hmm. so um, what time frames are we looking like in bc for a turnaround on a report
1: that has been a real um, struggle in bc and uh, it's varied through you know over the years we used to have a pretty good turnaround time we've always submitted samples to the University of Saskatchewan because we didn't have a lab here in BC to run CWD testing. Uh, and, you know, 10 years ago, we had like a two or three week turnaround because programs across Canada were sort of, you know, they, they, they weren't, um, have you know, they weren't testing that many animals. And, and so it was pretty good. But as, as the, CWD surveillance programs across Canada have expanded and testing more and more animals Then we just kind of, you know, the capacity uh, at the, at the lab was limited. And, um, and so that turnaround on result became longer and longer and longer. Uh, Last year it was, it was pretty bad. It was, um, you know, I think anywhere from, from six to probably 10 weeks for a turnaround on our results for the BC samples. Um, and and frankly, you know, that's just not, accept, you know, acceptable. Um, I know that that's very frustrating for, for hunters that are submitting samples. I mean, we, as a, like, wildlife program, uh, wildlife health program, we can't offer a food safety sort of service. We just don't, we don't have those types of resources to offer a food safety um, service for hunters, but we do, you know, absolutely rely on these samples, and so we want to provide, um, we want to provide that result back to the hunter as soon as we can. And so, um, a- and for us too, I mean, for surveillance, it's really important to get that information as soon as possible, right? Um, but honest, but honestly, like, like my motivation is, I'm grateful for the support and and that partnership from hunters. We really couldn't run this program without them. So anything I can do, to to you know support hunters and participating and and you know that means getting that result back as soon as possible so we've tried um we've tried to do a couple different things to expedite the um the result um this year we we tried to do some like prep samples in in bc before they were shipped off to to Saskatchewan um to try and get a better turnaround on results but again just capacity issues and and um you know the the avian influenza outbreak sort of kind of pulled some resources in a different direction and and again we've we've had a delay in in that in the results this season um which is really frustrating for me and I know it's frustrating um for hunters as well um Our dream has always been, and, you know, Helen and I have been pushing for this for 15 years to get a lab set up in BC to do CWD testing um, so that we have a little bit more control over, you know, the resources that go into it. And we're not competing with other programs, you know, in terms of getting in the, the lineup for, for the test. So next year we're hopeful that our, um, our uh, agriculture lab in Abbotsford is gonna have a platform for testing CWD. And, and we're hopeful that that turnaround on results will be um, much tighter. Um, so, uh, so that's the goal for next year. Um, it, you know, it's, it's been our goal to try and reduce that time, but I know it, it has been a, a real struggle. Um, so hopefully next year with this, um, BC, oh, the BC Lab for the first time, I mean, this has been the dream Hope it all comes together, and and we'll be able to offer a shorter turnaround time.
0: Awesome. Now, um, with the, uh, w- would it change if we had a. a- actual case of cwd would there be is there something that triggers for you guys oh infectious disease is here and then of course there are some triggers there's some things that obviously some management actions that are going to change but does it change the status and like okay it's here now and now we have these levers we can pull that we couldn't before
1: yeah i you know uh, fortunately or unfortunately i i think absolutely if we got a positive um case in bc i think um I think we would be able to access more resources. Hopefully, um, you know we've we have this outlined in our uh, in our response plan that just the response effort alone is going to require resources. But longer term, um, just you know managing the disease and, and doing effective surveillance um, will require more resources. Will require more capacity um, and. Uh, and, you know, our, our sample numbers will um, increase, will surely increase as well. So now we're, we're dealing with a, a larger volume of samples that we're going to need to, um, you know, address all of those, all those resource pressures. Right. So, yeah, as a it's a as a reportable disease, there's definitely levers under the Animal Health Act um, that will be triggered um, in terms of, uh, you know, some different um like tools that we'll have at our uh, disposal, but um, yeah, I think hopefully across the board. And I know there's always competing priorities and and, and limited resources, but I imagine once we get that first case, um, you know, we're we're going to need to 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 uh, adjust um, accordingly. Unfortunately, um, I think when we get that first case. Uh, it might be too late, right, <laughs> to, to have to have those resources to support the advice that we're getting from from sort of the CWD experts and other other places that have been dealing with this disease for a number of years now. Is that like we are in a, BC is in that critical time right now, where um, you know we need to make sure that we do everything we can right now um, to have our preventative measures like really tight and our surveillance really tight so that we can ensure that we're going to catch it early. Um, Cause that's our best chance of minimizing the negative uh, outcomes for wildlife in the province. And then, you know, the the impacts to all the folks that are, that rely on wildlife. Right. So, um, so this is really a key time. Um, so I'm, I, I hope that we can, even, you know, we we can build support and and build that capacity even before we get that first detection so that, uh, yeah, we can do our best to stay ahead of this.
0: Yeah, for sure. Now, Kate, are there, is there a Kate in every jurisdiction across Canada? Does everybody have a CWD sort of point person or is it, is BC kind of unique in that regard? And what provinces are there any anyone else that's cwd free or every what's the status across north america i guess let's just do canada really
1: yeah yeah so so yeah there's there's kind of a kate in every jurisdiction (laughs) um the uh yeah i mean some of the programs are set up differently obviously alberta um and saskatchewan um, manitoba now are in the thick of it and so um they've got teams in place and, uh, you know, more resources, um, you know, for sure they're testing many more, uh, uh animals every year. Um, but yeah, that, that's, that's kind of, you know, the you sort of wildlife health programs ac- across, um, across Canada will, will, you know, have, have somebody dedicated to CWD in general. Yeah. Yeah, and then of course in the in the states, you know, we're we're envious of some of their CWD programs in the states. Like, you know, Montana hires eighty-four technicians every year to support their CWD wow. surveillance, and so we don't we don't have those kind of um, th- those kind of resources up here. Um, it's it's well, yeah.
0: That was my question is what, you know, are you a one man or one woman team, or is there a bunch of technicians that support you? And what does that compare to, for example, Alberta? Um, Mm -hmm. and then of course we got the Montana example there. So I'm curious what, what the, and and budgets too, like, you know, what's a budget in BC versus Alberta versus obviously Mm -hmm. Montana, which would be huge.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I work for, for the BC wildlife health program. There's four of us, um, three biologists report to the the wildlife veterinarian. So that's Kylie. Um, and, you know, our, our team is, is tackling a number of different wildlife health issues, but we, we have sort of been assigned specific um, programs, specific, you know, areas. And so chronic wasting diseases is my responsibility. I've been managing that program, um, you know, for, I'm going to say 12 years, something like that. Uh, And so we all support each other within the wildlife health team. Um, You know, my, my colleagues and, you know, Kylie, Sherry, Maeve, they're amazing. And I I couldn't do it without them. They, they help with sampling and I, I send them off um, to do, you know, we do game checks with conservation officers. We do big sampling sessions out in the Kootenays. Um, And so they're all, like it's amazing, um, but uh, but I'm you know that's taking them away from from other tasks that they're responsible for, right? So, uh, so you know, as as far as a dedicated person, it's just me. Um, I've I've been able to access some some funds to hire some part time seasonal uh, coordinators. So we've got some contractors in some of our our priority areas that are helping to manage sort of on the ground operations, manage freezers, um, acting as sort of the local point point of contact for the community. Uh, But those are, you know, pretty part-time seasonal positions as well. Um, I don't have a dedicated budget aside from my salary for CWD. So we we, um, apply for external funding or, you know, other funding to support CWD. Uh, every year, the Together for Wildlife strategy has been our primary source of funding for the last couple of years. Um, was able to access some HCF, HCTF funding this year to to work on some um, management planning and and look at some management actions that have been applied elsewhere that might uh, you know be useful to us here in BC. So there's different you know every year it's a little bit different, but we apply for funding. And then um, that's what runs the CWD program here. Um, So yeah, our budget Mm -hmm. this year was 150,000. I don't know what Alberta's is, but the last couple of years, uh, you know, Marco said a million for Alberta for their Mm -hmm. budget. So, so yeah, we're, we're running on a shoestring sort of uh, counting on, you know, we're reliant on a lot of uh, people are volunteering their times and freezer hosts and, and uh you know all that kind of stuff people helping on the ground um yeah
0: Hmm. yeah that's uh you kind of wish that you know we had a half million or three hundred thousand dollar budget and we could do the prevention and then not have to spend a million or two or five million afterwards to yeah but um yeah yeah so for our listeners kate um what can BC hunters and I guess people outside our jurisdictions what can they do to help? What are some of the signs like if somebody's out in the field and they mm. see an infected they think might be an infected deer, mm-hmm. um, what steps should they take and what do they need to do to support you in your program?
1: Great. okay, thanks. Um, let's just talk about the signs first of all because that's another tricky one um, is is most uh, most animals that test positive for CWD look perfectly normal, like perfectly healthy. So in Alberta, for instance, um, you know, I talked to lots of hunters that harvest animals in, in Alberta and they're like big, healthy, you know, good nutritional condition animals, and then they've tested positive for CWD. So there's, there's in general, there's no real way when you've harvested an animal to, to visually, you know, determine whether they have cwd or not that's why we collect those tissues so those tissues are actually you know taken to a lab and either looked at under a microscope or they do like an assay to determine if those prions are present there's no way to visually determine that with an animal most animals look totally normal um, and so we don't tend to see sick animals on the landscape even in alberta where there's um, a large you know percentage of those populations in the east are infected like 50 percent of the mule deer populations in Eastern Alberta are infected with CWD, but they just don't see sick animals on the landscape. Um, So that's, that's not, uh, it doesn't provide us with that sort of uh, signal or warning sign that there's something wrong. Um, That said, you know, at at the later stages of the disease, um, the symptoms might include things like, uh, you know, Really thin animals, like extreme sort of emaciation of, um, you know, like weight, extreme weight loss, uh, and then the neurological symptoms like the poor coordination, um, you know, kind of trembling or stumbling. There's uh, there's descriptions of animals that are just kind of drooling, just looking, you know, abnormal. Of course, we want to hear about those. If if anyone ever see, observes those types of, uh, signs uh on the land then definitely reach out to wildlife health or to me directly we'd like to hear about those cases for sure um so anyway that's the tricky part about that but yeah in general what um what hunters and 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 folks could do to help um you know if you if you hear this listen to this podcast or or whatever you know Seek out some of the information. Take this information and, and share it. Help help us spread the word. Help us increase awareness. You know, talk to talk to your family, talk to your um, friends. Um, particularly if, if there's other hunters in, in your community that um, might not be aware of this. Uh, we, you know, we're trying to we're trying to produce resources through our website and share that through our partners to you know share on their different you know, social media platforms and things like that. So so seek out that information and share it as much as you can. Um, that would be really helpful to us. And then, of course, you know, submit submit uh, samples for testing. Um, you know, any any deer, elk or moose or caribou that's harvested in, in BC, we would like to test that for CWD. Um, we know that we don't have uh, maybe the best infrastructure set up. Like we've got several freezers set up in in the south now um uh so trying to make that really convenient for people to drop off samples uh we don't necessarily have that set up in in other parts of of the province so if you're in an area that doesn't have a freezer um you know reach out let us know where a you know a convenient location might be connect with you know local business in your area or you know clubs and see if someone would be willing to host a freezer you know that would be really helpful to us to just kind of build that capacity and and facilitate um more samples coming in so um all that would be really helpful yeah just um you know i'm i'm so grateful to all the support all the samples samples that hunters provide we really um we really could not, this program wouldn't exist without, without that support and that partnership. Um, And things are just going to get trickier from here. Right. And so we're, we're, I think it's super important that we're working together and, and um, you know, strengthening and building those partnerships uh, so that we can kind of face this with a team effort. It's good because that's, what's going to be required.
0: Mm, Yeah. Now, if you're interested in supporting, like let's say I go out and harvest a blacktail here or something and want to get you some data. Mm-hmm. Do I drive it down to the lab or, or somebody's in the lower mainland, Prince George? Mm-hmm. How do they get that, that stuff to you? What is it like physically? How would that work?
1: Yeah. So we have on our website... Um, we have a, a CWD website, um, with a list of our freezer locations. And, um, I try, I point people to that because we're trying to add freezer locations all the time. I think we added another four or five freezers that's just in the last couple of months. Um, so check the website for a freezer location. If you don't have a freezer location in your area, call me. My phone number is right on the website and I'll try and connect you with somebody, you know, sometimes our um, regional wildlife biologists or conservation officers can help out and um, and receive a sample Um, you know if you're on 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 Vancouver Island we're based in Nanaimo so folks can always bring them bring them here if that's convenient but um, yeah in other parts of the province just give us a call and and I will try to connect you um, with a with a convenient spot to bring samples to
0: so uh, this is just my uh, my brain trying to satisfy its uh, curiosity. But so you got this limited budget, mm-hmm. and so somebody drops a head off, right? They throw one in the freezer. Mm-hmm. Uh, who's doing that work? Like, how, where's the budget? Where's the money coming from? How do we? How do people do that? And how do they get that information? To, how does that information get to the lab? Um, there's yeah. got to be a process. It's not you driving down to Cranbrook to it is. to cape out. <laughs>
1: I, yeah, I, I spend, I spend, um, the majority of the hunting season on the road going, yeah, yeah, um, between me and my team and my contractors, um, we're all pretty hair straight back right now. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, I've been, I've been to, to various corners of the province over the last couple of months. Um, it's a lot of work, but, uh, but again, it's, you know, we're committed to processing these samples as soon as possible and getting the samples off to the lab so we can get those results back to the hunter um it's uh it's overwhelming it's it's a lot it's a lot of work but um it's also really rewarding when I can get out into communities and connect with people and uh and you know we'll have these big sessions out in Cranbrook and people hear about it and hunters will bring Bring their harvested animals right to the warehouse um for us to sample and then you get to have conversations with people and and that's another opportunity to increase awareness and and so um so yeah so that's that's what we do and and, you know it's it's not perfect um there's there's delays and you know we can't be everywhere all the time but um we're doing our best um to to you know keep keep the samples rolling and and um uh yeah and talking to hunters a lot about um ways to improve those systems for sure um but uh but yeah we're doing our best
0: <laughs> yeah that's uh that's amazing so how many how, how was was this year did you meet your criteria what you were wanting to get in terms of samples were you under or over what was your where'd you end up with that
1: yeah i don't have the total sample numbers for this season but um My sense is that we're, we're tracking low. Um, Okay. uh, we've basically, you know, the majority of the samples that we're getting right now are coming out of those mandatory units in the, in the Kootenai region, in region four. Um, and, uh, yeah, like I said, I, you know, the numbers from last year, for example, we tested about, um, 1250 animals across the province last season, and uh, I think 850 came out of the Kootenai region. So the majority out of the south, Southeast there. Um, I would say that our, you know, and that was our target for for the province annually is 3,000 animals. So last year we were just below 50% of what we wanted. And, um, and this year I would say our numbers are, not much down, but definitely lower than, than last year so far. Um, uh, again, most of the samples coming out of the Kootenai region, um, but uh, we've had some pretty good participation in the Okanagan. Numbers are up in the Okanagan, still well below our target, but uh, a lot of uh, groups locally are, are setting up new freezers and, and that's been really helpful um likewise in the in the lower mainland we had some some more freezer locations set up this year so so you know numbers are are coming up in some areas but where we really need them in the region four and um you know the the northeast uh i would say we're well below targets the samples we're getting right now are low and uh not providing um much confidence in uh you know, that, that data is not really giving us that confidence in in a in a disease status um, to confirm our disease status. So, yeah, so that's kind of where we're at right now. I would um, absolutely like, like to see the numbers um, increase. Uh, I would say, yeah, double, double or triple across the board is, is closer to what we would need them at. Mm-hmm.
0: Awesome. Okay. Well, uh, I know I've taken a bunch of your time today. Is there anything else just wrapping up that, uh, any message you want to get out to any prospective hunters or, <laughs> or even just the, the public out there that we can share today?
1: Yeah. Well, I want to thank you Kyle so much for the opportunity. Um, you know, venues like this are, are so valuable for us and in, in sharing this information and, um, and helping to get the word out. So I really appreciate that. And you know, if there are any, any folks are listening to this and have more questions, please do reach out. Um, hopefully you'll be able to, you know, uh, share our contact information on, on your your platform here, Kyle. Um, you know, my I'm always happy to get a phone call or an email if anyone has questions or, or ideas. Um, encourage folks to, to get involved and um, whether that's, you know, get involved in one of our, our working groups or um, you know, if you have an opportunity to sort of organize or host an information session in your community, like any of that kind of stuff would be really helpful to us. Um, so I'm always open to those types of ideas. So please reach out and uh, again, just massive um, thank you and, and gratitude to um, the hunting community across BC, all of our partners um, uh That support this program we really couldn't do it without you so so thanks
0: awesome well thank you Kate for leading the charge on this It's such an important file and uh and yeah hopefully we can we can keep growing the support for it and do our best to keep the that nasty disease out of the province
1: (laughs) yeah let's do that (laughs) thanks Kyle
0: thank you